0: Amen. Irenaeus, he was a second century uh, theologian, biblical scholar, one of the founding fathers, really, of the church, but he said this. He said, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. When you imagine man fully alive, or when you imagine God's sort of eternal state for humans, for, for man, for you, What do you think? When you think of heaven, when you think of the future reality that God has in store for for humanity, what do you think of? What do you picture? I think most of us, if we're being honest, most of us that grew up in a Western context and Western culture, we probably imagine a lot less color than now. Probably imagine a lot less physical than now. We probably imagine a white Hospital room area with white clouds and a very clean and sterile environment where you are playing on a, a cute little gold harp okay maybe that's too far uh, but it's this eternal worship service right in this very just sort of unexciting unlifeless environment most of us that for some reason that's become the picture of heaven that we consider it's become the picture of heaven that we think about it's very unexciting but what if I told you that in reality, heaven, God's future for humanity, is actually everything you love about this world, without everything that you hate, and everything that you love about this world, but in full HD, not granulated, not pixelated, but in full HD and Technicolor. You guys, you ever you ever you know switch from RCA cables to HDMI, HDMI cables? Or you switch and you upgrade from your old television set to the new one that you just had to get when you walked into Costco that has the curved screen, you know, and you, you plug your new Blu-ray player or you connect your Netflix or whatever, and it pops up and you're like, wow! Like, it's so clear. Same show, but man, it's so clear. What if I told you that heaven and God's future for humanity is actually going to be everything you love about this world now but in technicolor. Everything you love now, but more full and more rich. Amen. There's a movie that was made. You guys probably have heard of it. It's called The Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, and and this, this movie was really kind of a, a groundbreaking moment for the cinematic world because they had uh, really pretty recently, they'd figured out how to do color movies, how to, how to color movies and color television. And, uh, and so they really wanted to show off some of the technology of the the, the new kind of cinematic breakthroughs, uh, if you will. And so, when they made the Wizard of Oz, they decided, okay, we, we know Oz is gonna be color, but in order to make Oz pop, we need to make Kansas black and white. And not only do we need to make it black and white, we need to make it like boring black and white, which Kansas, I think, I'm guessing, probably is, it's, it's probably black and white, right? Have you guys ever been to Kansas? <laughs> Seriously, I, I wonder if it is black and white. Um, so, so they make, they make Kansas black and white, in order to contrast the pop of the color that comes when, uh, when Dorothy reaches Oz. And it's funny, you know, because all she's ever known is black and white, right? All she's ever known is black and white. She has no idea that there's a color universe. And, and, and the experience that she has in, in Kansas is very normal to to what a human life would be like. But when she gets caught up in the cyclone and she opens the door and walks out into Oz, the, the audience would have gasped because... All they've ever known is black and white television. And all of a sudden, Dorothy walks out into this explosion of color. And everything in that set was as colorful as possible. Every flower, every stone in the yellow brick road was meant to pop. It was just full HD technicolor. Everyone would have been blown away because of the contrast. And I can imagine, you know, this isn't in the script or in the book, but I can just sort of imagine in my imagination that Dorothy, as she stepped out into Oz, her first thought would have been this is how it was meant to be. See, life was meant to be in color, but all she'd ever known was black and white. I actually think that our experience in this world is very much like that. All we've ever known is black and white. And and, and there's gonna come a moment where we step out into the next world and we go, ah, it was always supposed to be this way. It was always supposed to be in color. Color was always the intention. And it will be everything that we know about this life, but maximized, more full, more rich. There's a story in Mark chapter eight about, uh, about a man who was blind and he encountered Christ and, and Jesus healed him. And it's kind of a funny story because it's like Jesus didn't do it right or something. It's like Jesus only half healed him. You know what I'm talking about? He, he heals him partially. And this man must have, he must have been able to see at some point in life because he knew what a person looked like. And Jesus says, can you can you see? And he says, I see men, but they are walking around like trees. So he he can't quite see clearly. He sees people, but to them, they're still blurry. And so, of course, Jesus has to finish the healing <laughs> and, and heal him in totality. But, but I think that that's kind of where we're at now. We're in this position, we're in this state in life where We see things, but we don't see them clearly, and we don't see them in full color. And and there's gonna come a time where, where all of a sudden, the full healing comes, the full clarity comes, and we become fully alive. I read you this quote, the glory of God is man fully alive, because I believe that what heaven ultimately is, and what our future state is, is humanity, or man, fully alive. You see, we're alive right now, but we're not as alive as we should be. We're also not as alive as we could be. There's something that is limiting the, the life that you know you were created for, that you know you were made for. The glory of God is revealed most when man is fully alive. And so this morning we're gonna look at a passage called the cultural mandate. That's the theological term for it at least, the cultural mandate. And the cultural mandate is fascinating to me because it's one of the only commands that we have from God to man before sin entered the picture. So what it creates for us, what it frames for us is it it, it teaches us what human life should look like before sin screwed it up, before sin twisted it. it. It shows us what man fully alive looks like in what we see in the garden. What God tells Adam and Eve to do, the cultural mandate, the mandate to fill the earth, as we'll see, Uh, and to go and to steward and rule it is actually one of the clearest windows that we have into God's intention and eternal intention for humanity. Now, I wanna ask three questions this morning of the cultural mandate, okay? So if you're a note taker, if you like writing down outlines, we're gonna ask three simple questions of the cultural mandate. The first question is, what is it? What is the cultural mandate? The second question is, what happened to it? What happened to it? And then thirdly, we're going to ask, what do we do with it? Okay? So what is it? What happened to it? What do we do with it? So the first question is, regarding the cultural mandate, what is it? Well, let's, let's look at it. Let's read it together and uh, see. Now, there's six things in particular that the cultural mandate tells us about what it is to truly be human, what it is to truly be man fully alive, uh, what, what it teaches us for, for man to be most alive as opposed to mostly dead, if you're a prince's bride, right? To be mostly alive, to, to be the most alive. And, and those six things, number one is man reflecting God's image. So take a look at verse 26. The first thing man was intended to do was to reflect God's image. Uh, let's start in 24, actually. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, now notice, up until this point, now this is review, but up until this point, everything that God has made, has, he has made according to its kind, okay? Animals according to its kind, beasts according to their kind, birds according to their kind, okay, so they are um, a new species, a new thing happening there. But then we get to verse 26, and then God said, Let us make man in our image. So rather than according to his own kind, he says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds, over the heavens, over the livestock over all the earth, over the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image God created him, male and female, he created them. So before God gives humanity the cultural mandate, before he tells them what they are to go do, he first tells them who they are. And there's an important lesson for you there, that before you can know what you're supposed to do, you have to know who you are. So so, so many people go straight to the, what do I do? What do I do in life? What's my calling? And really where you need to start is who you are. And the, and the gospel. What I love about the gospel. The gospel addresses who you are before it tells you what to do. Because you can't know what to do if you don't know who you are. So what God does with humans is he says, this is who you are. And who are you? You are an imager. Everybody say, I am an imager. I was so like third grade, like not happy to be here. When is lunch? Everybody say, I am an imager. That is who you are. That is your identity. Your identity is you are a reflection of a person, the person of God. You understand, God is not a force. He's he's not nature. Nature isn't God, and God isn't nature, okay? God is distinct from nature. He is a person. He has a personality. And do you know how you know what a person is? Because you are one. God made humanity for the purpose of imaging, for reflecting. And the only way life ever makes sense is if you step into that calling. And the only way the cultural mandate makes sense is if we understand that we were created to image God. Okay, we were created to image God. Theologians call it the imago Dei, okay? It's in the image of God. And what that does is it gives us intrinsic value as humans. Now, we already covered this a few weeks ago, but it gives us intrinsic value as humans. Your value as a human goes far beyond your ability to produce Or be productive. Your value as a human is intrinsic. You have to do nothing to earn it because God made you an imager, and therefore your life is valuable. That's why we value human life at any stage, okay? So the first thing man fully alive is, is man reflecting God's image. To be fully alive is to reflect God's image, and that's why God created man, to reflect his image. The second thing, man fully alive is, number two, man receiving God's blessing. So man reflecting God's image, number two, man receiving God's blessing. Look at verse 28. The first thing that God does in the cultural mandate is blesses Adam and Eve. He blesses them. Why? Well, for one, because God is a God who blesses. He loves to bless. You know, sometimes we don't think of God that way. We think that he he just likes to make our life hard. Okay, uh, sometimes making your life hard is a blessing because he's trying to teach you something. But God is a God who loves to bless. He, the, before he tells Adam and Eve to do anything, he starts by blessing them. And the reason is because he wants to remind them that the blessing isn't because of anything they've done. The blessing came before the doing. What a great gospel picture, right? Blessing precedes doing. Religion says doing equals blessing. Gospel says blessing leads to doing. So, God, the first thing He does is He blesses them. But how does He bless them? What does He bless them with? He blesses them with the cultural mandate, He blesses them with the work. The work, the doing that they're going to do is the blessing. Do you follow? He says the blessing is that I have something for you to do. I've put humanity in the garden for a purpose. You know, it is a blessing to have purpose. We all long for it. We all know that we should have purpose. And many of us spend our entire life trying to figure out, what is my purpose? Okay, well, that's because you were created as a purpose-driven being. You were created systemically at a DNA level in order to be purpose-driven. So without purpose, you die. Without purpose, you rot. That's why people rot in prison cells, because they don't feel like they have purpose. They thrive in prison cells if they find purpose within that prison cell, because it's a basic human instinct. God created humans to reflect them and He created them to have purpose. Okay, He reflected them and have, created them to have purpose. What is that purpose? We'll look at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said them to them: Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So if you're, if you're following the outline, number three, man filling God's creation. He's reflecting God's image, receiving God's blessing, and filling God's creation. You know what filling God's creation is? Making babies. That's what he's telling them to do, fill the earth. Fill the earth with imagers. See, God didn't create uh, the earth so that Adam and Eve could just have a lot of space. He created the earth so it would be covered with human beings. Covered with image-bearing humans. So he tells Adam and Eve, hey, your job is to procreate and to fill the earth with imagers. That's their job. Why? Because God loves a full house, doesn't he? There's something beautiful about a full house. It's messy. It's cluttered. I got four kids right now in a 900-square-foot house and I'm fighting clutter, right? It's like, nope, that's gotta go, nope, that's gotta go. You can't leave your Legos on the floor, no. And and sometimes it drives me crazy because I'm a minimalist and I love having space, but the reality is I would rather have a full house that's full of life than an empty house with lots of space. If you want a clean barn, get rid of the oxen, right? That's what the Bible says. Okay, part of having oxen is you have messes. So God wants a creation that's full. That's always been his plan. He's always wanted a, a, a earth that's full of image-bearing God-glorifying human beings. It's always been his plan. He wants to fill the earth, and, and, he, and he does it through, through marriage, through, through Adam and Eve creating babies. God is pro-life on every level. He's pro-life on every level. This, this is why abortion is such an abasement to God's very mandate. It's deciding that life cannot come into this world when God has said life is supposed to come into this world. We need life. That's, that's why we're here. God is filling his creation. The cultural mandate is a little bit more than that, though, as well. Let me just read this quote to you. People must now carry, this is regarding the uh, A.M. Walters, regarding the cultural mandate. He says, people must now carry on the work of development by being fruitful. They must fill the earth even more. By subduing it, they must form it even more. Mankind, as God's re- representatives on earth, carry on where God left off. Have you thought about that? I mean, God could have just dropped six billion people on the earth, right? He could have been like, boom, Breathe out six billion humans. He didn't do it that way. He left it in process so that Adam and Eve would have a part to play. And what is that process? But this is now to be a human development of the earth. The human race will fill the earth with its own kind and it will form the earth for its own kind. From now on, the development of the created earth will be societal and cultural in nature. In a single word, the tasks ahead is, note it, civilization. So what is the cultural mandate? It's God telling humans to go create civilization. Did you know civilization is godly? Did you know an organized world with governments and, and systems, and it, it's godly? It's, it's human nature to organize things, isn't it? As soon as something gets to a certain point, you have to organize it. it. Cracks me up when people say, well, you know, we just flow with the spirit. I'm like, you mean be unorganized? You know the spirit of God is really organized? You know he's a planner? Okay, so, so just you know, going off your feelings doesn't mean you're more spiritual. Actually, God, his plan was to fill the earth and it was to fill it with a structured, cultured, civilized earth, or uh, human civilization. That was always, that was always his plan. So he fills God's creation. And then, number four, uh, man fully alive is man sharing God's rule. Man sharing God's rule. Look at verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Note that word subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So this is another facet of the cultural mandates. God says, fill the earth, bear my image, I'm going to bless you. Um, And then he says, I want you to work with me in doing this work. The cultural mandate is actually God inviting mankind into partnership with him in creating civilization. That's what the cultural mandate is. He's he's telling Adam and Eve, I'm choosing to partner with you, not as equals, of course, as a vice regent. Adam becomes a vice regent um, in order to govern and, and have dominion and subdue the earth. This actually is intrinsic, again, in our human nature. We were designed to take things and govern them. We were, we, were, we were designed to, to, to rule. We were designed to have dominion. We were designed to subdue. And, and, and by subdue, we were designed to make it better. It's built into us to do that. We want to take something that's may, maybe not as good as it could be and, and make it better. You know, God didn't put Adam and Eve in a, in a, in a global garden. He put them in a un... Um, oh, man. Unmanicured, ungardened world that had one little garden in the middle. What? Uncultivated. Uncultivated. Uh, <laughs> he, he put them in one little place, and he said, I want you to go make the rest of the earth gardened. That's how he created us. He, he created us to share his rule and dominion, and he put man in the place of dominion. We don't have time to go there now, but jot down Psalm chapter eight. That's the psalmist giving commentary on this position of dominion and rule that humans have. One commentator, he notes this. He says, God commanded Adam and Eve to acquire knowledge so they could master their material environment, to bring all its elements into the service of the human race. Whatever the case, subdue does not mean destroy or ruin. It does mean, it does mean to act as managers who have the authority to run everything as God planned. Okay, so God created humanity with this purpose of cultivation, this purpose of work. Now, by the way, um, what are we supposed to do about this whole environmentalism thing? You know, what, what should Christians think about the environment? Because it, it seems like there's this big divide culturally right now. It seems more along political lines, right? Um, it seems like a lot of the conservative evangelicals find themselves being against or at loggerheads with environmentalists. But what does Genesis 1, what does the cultural mandate tell us about what Christians should, the way Christians should view environment? Well, two things. Look, look over at chapter 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and keep it. Work it means use it. Cultivate it. Use the resources that God's given us. Cut the trees down and make beautiful tables. Okay, but don't get the other, don't miss the other half of this. And keep it. You know what keep it is? It's preservation. There's a real big difference between conservationism, note this, conservationism and environmentalism. Conservationism is what Christians should be all about. Christians shouldn't be okay with animals going extinct. Christians shouldn't be okay with uh, with us ruining our natural resources and ruining the earth in a certain way that, that, and I'm not talking about global warming. I don't even know what to think about that. I'm just talking about the obvious things, the basic things, oil spills and garbage, Flowing up on the side of the shores, and particular animals going extinct. Christians should be about conservationism, but where it becomes wrong is when it turns into environmentalism. You know what environmentalism is? It's where we worship the creation. It's where we make animals more important than humans, and and we say actually um, we're gonna we're gonna literally divert all of this human life just to save this one bug, or whatever. It's it's out of whack. So Christians should be all about the environment but we should be understanding that the environment was actually created to be subservient to humans. Humans were the crown jewel of God's creation, and we should enjoy God's creation in a sustainable way. That's just a side note for you. Fifthly, we see man receiving God's provision. So man so far reflecting God's image, receiving God's blessing, filling God's creation, sharing God's rule, and and fifthly, man receiving God's provision. Look at verse 29. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So this is beautiful. Not only does God give them work to do and God give them uh, identity and give them this blessing, he gives them provision. He gives them what they need to get the job done. He doesn't just ask us to do things and then not give us what we need to do it. It's exactly what Jesus did when He sent the Holy Spirit. He said, "Go make disciples. Here's the Holy Spirit." He, where, you've heard it before. Where God guides, He provides. Right? When God calls you to do something, He's going to give you the resources. His commandments are His enablements. When God says, "Go do this," He's going to help you. And what's so beautiful about man fully alive in the garden is that man is not in need. There is no need. In God's perfect world, there's no need. There's no. Where is my next meal going to come from? There's no. Does this food have cancer-causing things in it? Is this food going to set wrong in my stomach? Is there food poisoning here? Or, 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 there's no food insecurity. There's none of that. There's just full, perfect provision. Everything in the garden was for man to eat. There was no junk food. That came later. the The, the, the picture of God's environment is that God is a providing God. In catch this, man fully alive has always been man fully dependent. Man fully alive has always been man fully dependent. We think of fully alive means I don't need anything from God. But in fact, God's perfect environment with God's perfect human beings was an environment of dependence. They needed God. He fed them. He fed Adam. He gave them the food that needed. Okay, so don't think that we outgrow dependence. And then lastly, number six, Man fully alive is man enjoying God's creation. Man enjoying God's creation. Look at what God does here. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, note it, very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God reserves this declaration of something being very good for the very end of his creative work on the sixth day, when he's all done, he's about to rest, then he says, behold, it is not just good, it is very good. Why is it very good? Because man is in God's place doing God's work, bearing God's image for God's glory, and that, my friends, is very good. It is a very good. It is is a very good environment. It is fully alive. And God is most glorified through man when man is most fully alive, when man is most closely uh, fulfilling what God had intended for man to do and to be, which was to work his ground for his glory, to eat his food, to enjoy his creation. You know, God made all of this for us to enjoy. He made all of it for us to enjoy. But the reality is we're only seeing it in a blurry lens. We're seeing it like trees walking around like people. We're seeing it like Dorothy in black and white. We're we're not seeing it in technicolor. We've never seen it in technicolor because we didn't live in the garden, right? Adam and Eve, they saw the color and then they saw the black and white. We've only ever known black and white. But what we have here in the cultural mandate is we have this beautiful picture and this beautiful reminder of how God intended it to be. Now, that answers the first question which is what is it? What is the cultural mandate? But the second question is this, what happened to it? Okay, what happened to it? is? It, is it, did God forget about the whole cultural mandate thing? It, it, it's, are we nailing it? Are we fulfilling it? Are we doing it? Uh, did did God change it? Did He cash it in and give us the Mosaic covenant instead? So forget that. Do something else. Where where you know what happened to it? Okay, and and there's two answers to that. They're very important. What happened to the cultural mandate was this. Number one, it was interrupted. It wasn't forgotten. It wasn't changed. Was it nullified? Was it rejected? It was interrupted. Interrupted by what? Interrupted by sin. It was interrupted by sin. I wrote this down because I want you guys to see this. I want you to see the contrast of what happens in Genesis 3 when sin enters the picture. Sin directly attacks the beauty and the sufficiency of what God made in the garden for Adam and Eve. It, it, it literally, it, if, you, if you were to draw a direct line from Genesis 1, the cultural mandate, to Genesis 3, the curse, there's correlations. There's such correlations. I want you to see them. So humanity fully alive is bearing God's image, knowing who you are, and knowing why you matter. Humanity in sin is suicide, self-harm, self-hatred, depression, gender confusion, purposelessness. Humanity fully alive is sex, marriage, intimacy, confidence, trust. Humanity in sin is distrust, shame, insecurity, lust, divorce, adultery, infidelity, prostitution, polygamy, struggle for headship. Humanity fully alive, community, culture, trust, relationship, friendship. Humanity in sin is gossip and backbiting and slander and extortion and betrayal. Humanity fully alive is children and family and legacy and lineage and filling the earth and fruitfulness. Humanity in sin is infertility, murder, painful childbearing. Think about how many of those happened just within the first 50 years of the garden. The first sin, what was it? and Abel. It's the snuffing out of human life, the very thing God said to go do. It's through childbearing that God was going to fill the earth, yet through the curse, childbearing, childbearing becomes painful, becomes hard. How many women have lost their lives bearing children? So in sin, humanity, is infer- infertility, murder, painful, childbearing, abortion, neglect, child abuse, child slavery, child sacrifice, all of this is introduced Humanity fully alive is stewarding the earth's resources, ruling humanity justly and mercifully, caring for the animals, preservation, conservation. Humanity in sin is Satan ruling the earth. You know, in Genesis one, who was ruling the earth? Man. Genesis three, who begins ruling the earth? Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. The stewardship, the management, the oversight that humans were meant to have in Genesis 1 was turned over to Satan. That's what C.S. Lewis is is hinting at, okay? When you read his his book set, Narnia was meant to be ruled by a son of Adam, but the son of Adam failed. And so when the four come in through the wardrobe, what do they find? They find a world covered in snow. Why is it covered in snow? Because the white witch is on the throne. It's not her throne, but she's taken it. That's the idea So because man failed at man's job of ruling and cultivating and leading, Satan now rules the earth. In sin, we see man ruling greedily, selfishly, incapably. We see nature being ravished and raped, animals going extinct, rampant injustice. Listen to this. The earth and animal kingdom drowned in a global flood because of man's sin. Do you realize that the global flood was the ultimate failing of man to steward creation? God had to drown all of created life, other than two of each kind, because of the sin of man, because man failed. Humanity fully alive is a fulfilling and enjoyable work life. You know, work is not sin. You don't have to work because of sin. You don't have to work because of the fall. Work actually came before the fall. You don't hate your job because work's cursed, or you don't hate your job because work is sin, you hate your job because work is cursed. Healthy and abundant food and provision. This was man fully alive. In sin, a cursed and dissatisfying work life. Hard and unyielding ground full of thorns and thistles. Starvation and food insecurity. Food is adulterated and even toxic. Do you notice that God's blessing to man was that he could work? Do you know what God's cursing to man was? Work. Isn't that interesting? In God's blessing, man works and work is satisfying. And work yields fruit. And work actually... um, Gets you results. In the cursed world, work becomes hard, dissatisfying. Humanity fully alive. There's no death, no sickness, new bodies, no defects, increased mental capacity, eyesight, strength, abilities, senses, all increased. Humanity in sin, death is unavoidable, age is excruciating, handicaps, universal so what happened to the cultural mandate it's been interrupted by sin sin has interrupted the cultural mandate and and for that reason now we can only get glimpses and tastes of what God intended for humanity you know those moments like last year bachelor, mount bachelor cruising down nothing but fresh powder, blue sky day sun on my face not a care in the world. Carving down the mountain, I'm thinking, wow, this is close. It's not quite there. Last night, I'm sitting in my living room. I'm holding this sweet baby boy, and I'm, 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 he's smiling at me, and I'm watching my daughter interact with my beautiful wife, and they're just amazing, and I'm just feeling cozy, and I'm feeling thankful, and I'm feeling full, and, and I'm thinking, wow, this is close. But even in that moment, the reality is I wake up the next day, and what do I feel? Emptiness. Discontentment. See, we only get glimpses of it. We get glimpses of man fully alive. We feel alive for a moment, but it's fleeting. It's fleeting because the cultural mandate has been interrupted. So what's the answer? Well, not only has it been interrupted, but something else has happened to the cultural mandate. It's been fulfilled. The cultural mandate has also been fulfilled. And it's actually been more fully fulfilled than it would have been if Adam hadn't blown it. Let me ask it this way What would it take for the blessing of the cultural mandate? to be realized again. What would it, what would it take? What would the ingredients be for God's blessing that we read about here in Genesis 1 uh, of man reflecting God's image, receiving God's blessing, filling God's earth, sharing God's rule, enjoying God's provision? What would it take to reactivate that? What would it take to fulfill the cultural mandate again? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing it would take is a new Adam. We need a new Adam. Do you understand that Adam is is not just a historical figure? He is an executive figurehead of all humanity. Do Do you understand what I mean by that? For the next however many days, if Donald Trump gets on the phone and he calls Putin and he says, we're going to war, guess what? If, if nuclear weapons get launched because of one man's decisions, guess what? We all go to war. And you can say, well, I don't wanna go to war. Well, I didn't choose to go to war. Well, I didn't do anything to go to war. It doesn't matter. You're part of this country, and this country is represented by one man. He is the executive figurehead. So you could say, well, I don't like that Adam failed. I want the cultural mandate to be back. Why did he blow it, and why is him blowing it have to do with me? Well, the reality is is he represents you. And listen, he doesn't just represent what you, he doesn't just represent you, he represents what you would have done if you were him. Oh, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. You would have done exactly what he did, every single one of us, time and time and time and time again until all of eternity. The only way the cultural mandate, the only way the beauty of man fully alive is fully realized is if we get a new and better Adam. We need a new one. Turn with me to Romans chapter five. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness, that's Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is much more than just a feel-good story or a character or someone who even just came to pay for your sins so you don't have to go to hell. Jesus is the new Adam, the better Adam. He did everything Adam couldn't do. Adam was in a perfect environment with everything he needed to succeed, no reason to, to, to stray from the obedience of God, Jesus put himself in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, completely surrendered, completely alone, completely starving, completely away from any kind of community and security, and he did what Adam couldn't do. He obeyed perfectly. And because he's obeyed perfectly, now we have a new Adam. And because we have a new Adam, we have a new humanity. Anyone who is in the new Adam. You know, the Bible's kind of racist. It splits all of humanity into two races. Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. Which are you? Either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. Either you are of the line of your father Adam and therefore adopt and inherit all of the sin consequences and sin natures of your father Adam or you become born again into a new family with a new executive figurehead whose perfection and perfect life is accredited to your account. Now listen to me. The cultural mandate is not something that you need to go fulfill. The cultural mandate is something, listen, something that has been fulfilled for you. Jesus fulfilled it and is fulfilling it perfectly. He didn't just hit reset so we can start over and fail again. He became the Adam Adam couldn't be. He's creating the, uh, the humanity that Adam didn't create. And because of that, because we have a new Adam and because we have a new humanity, listen, we also have a new mission. And the new mission is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, flip to it. You know it as the great co-mission. Co- meaning community and mission meaning what we do. It's what Jesus told the disciples to go do right before he went to the right hand of the Father. The great commission is the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is the Great Commission. And I'll show you why. Verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw it, they worshiped him. But some doubted. <laughs> They're still doubting, even all the way to the end. It baffles me. And notice, and then Jesus came and said to them, These are Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, what happened? God gave Adam authority. What happened to that authority? It was taken from Adam and it was given to Satan. When Jesus went to the cross, he took the authority back. He became the new Adam and he also became the one with all the authority. And so what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's saying, hey, this authority thing that you didn't have, I have it now. I purchased it. I have the authority. And because I have the authority and because you're in me, you have the authority. And then he goes on. Number 19, go therefore and make, not babies. What is it? Disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and absorbing them into this new humanity, teaching them uh, about this new humanity, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What Jesus is doing is sending his disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what Adam didn't, to fill the earth with God's glory, to fill the earth with God's image. We do that through making disciples. Isn't that beautiful? The cultural mandate was not forgotten. It was fulfilled. It was interrupted, but it's fulfilled, and it continues on through the work of the church. God is filling the earth with his glory, one person at a time, through the process of making disciples, and that's why, as a church, that's our primary focus. Our primary focus is making disciples by renewing minds to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to to, to get on board with the mission of Jesus. That's what we're going to do. That's what we do. We make disciples. Because that's what Genesis 1 says to do. Fill the earth with people that reflect God's image. Jesus is the ultimate image of God. So we preach him. The reality is, It's the same blessing, but it's a new Adam, a new humanity, a new mission, and a new creation. Now, what do we do with the cultural mandate? Okay, what do we do with it? How does it apply to us now? Because obviously, we're not Adam and Eve. Okay, how does it apply to us now? I just wanna give you three practical things, and then we're done, okay? Three practical things, write them down. Number one, look back. Number two, look down. Number three, look forward. Okay, look back, look down, look forward. First, I want you to look back. I want you to look back. You're gonna wake up tomorrow and you are gonna feel this urge, this need to prove your importance, okay? You're gonna feel this need to fulfill the cultural mandate. Why? Because God programmed you that way. Same reason when I turn my computer on, it wants me to type on it. Why? Because it was made that way. So when you wake up tomorrow and you wanna go conquer the world, God made you to do that. But here's the problem is right on the heels of that feeling comes this whole sense of inadequacy but I can't and I'm not and I'm not enough I can't work enough I can't do enough I can't be fulfilled enough and when that happens and when you feel that feeling I want you to stop I want you to look back at the cultural mandate and I want you to remind yourself that Jesus fulfilled it for you see the, the beauty of the cultural mandate is not that it tells us what to do it's that it told us what Jesus did do And that the peace and the joy and the life that comes is in that moment when you stop and go, Jesus did this for me. He reversed the curse. He lived the cultural mandate perfectly. And his performance is where we find the blessing. Do you hear that? His performance is where we find the blessing. You want the blessing? Don't go try to get it in your own performance. The blessing of Genesis 1, the blessing of God and the cultural mandate is in the performance of Christ. He has performed for you. That's called a gospel-centered life. That's where you get up in the morning and you say, I am so excited to live today because Jesus performed for me. And his performance is accredited to my account. And God sees his performance, not my performance. And I don't have to prove anything today because God proved it for me. I don't have to prove my value. I don't have to prove that I'm worth it. I don't have to prove that I'm a hard worker, that I'm successful. Jesus proved it. His performance is what matters, and I'm gonna believe that. So I want you to look back. Second thing, I want you to look down. I want you to look down. Remember, the cultural mandate was, pardon me, the blessing was the work, and the work was the blessing. The same is true of the Christian life, okay? We don't work to get God's favor, but we certainly can work and enjoy God's blessing. God created an Adam and Eve knowing that it would be in the work that they would find blessing. And in the same way as Christians, it's in the work oftentimes that we find blessing. You know, we sit here and we think, Lord, Lord, I just want to have more joy. And God says, cool. You know what really would give you joy? Doing the work. As a Christian, right in front of you, there is a plow. There's a plow of ministry. There's a plow of disciple making. Are you pushing the plow? Are you a spectator? Are you a participant? Which are you? We don't earn grace, but we do access the blessing, oftentimes by getting on board with what Christ is doing. So look down, see what's in front of you. And then lastly, and and most importantly to this message, I want you to look forward. I want you to look forward and I want you to think about what's coming. I want you to think about what's coming. What is coming? Technicolor is coming. Technicolor is coming. There is going to come a time for some of you, maybe 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50, whatever. There is going to come a time soon where you will die and your body will go on the ground. And like that, like a snap of a finger, it, 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 you, you will rise, Christ will return, you will get a new body that has heightened senses. You will have a new body that has greater physical strength, greater eyesight, greater hearing, greater mental abilities to, to reason and philosophize and think and, and to be able to speak the way you always wished you could speak and to be able to love the way you always wished you could love and, and you'll be brought into a new creative universe where there's no distrust and no insecurity and no pain and no sorrow and, 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 and no none of the things that, that constantly pull us down. All of that will be gone. You'll have a new body and a new creation. God's presence will be fully available. And in an instant, all the pain that you're feeling right now, all the sorrow that you're feeling right now, or feeling right now will, will feel like a distant dream. You'll barely, you'll barely remember it. You'll remember it just enough to enjoy where you're at. The new heavens and the new earth that God has for us, it, it's everything that you're longing for. And most importantly, Him. He's there. Have you ever heard the question asked if you could get everything you've ever wanted for all of eternity, but God wouldn't be there, would you want it? If the answer is yes, then you might want to take a good look at what you think joy is. What's going to make it all activated is the fact that God's presence is there, Jesus will be accessible. And you will have the body and the capability to fully worship and understand that and to pursue. And it'll be exciting. Colors will be heightened. It's extremely exciting. It's extremely exciting. There will come a moment soon where you will step out of the house into proverbial Oz and you will realize man, it's always meant to be this way. It's always meant to be this. The glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is when you recognize how God created you, what God created you for, and you step into that. N.T. Wright, I'll just end with a couple quotes. He said, when God does what God intends to do, this will be an act of fresh grace, of radical newness. At one level, it will be quite unexpected, like a surprise party with guests we never thought we would meet and delicious food we never thought we would taste. But at the same time, there will be a righteousness or a rightness about it, a rich continuity with what has gone before so that in the midst of our surprise and delight, we will say, of course, this is how it had to be even though we'd never imagined it. I think when, when, we, when we stand in the new heavens and the new earth, we're gonna go, ah, oh, this is it. This is where I belong. One last quote here. Actually, skip to this one. In the truest sense, Christian pilgrims, this is C.S. Lewis, have the best of both worlds. We have joy whenever this world reminds us of the next and we take solace whenever it does not. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is: he's saying tomorrow, Christian, as you live your life and you go back to work, you have the joy of of when you experience these these moments of elation, these moments of joy, these moments of, of rightness, everything feels right in your life, you go, man, think how much better heaven's gonna be and then five minutes later when you stub your toe and you accidentally cuss and you yell at your kids, not that it ever happens, um, you go, wow, I'm never gonna have to deal with this again. This is temporary and it should remind you of what God is coming. Christian, I want you to look forward. I want, to, I want you to be driven by what is coming. What is it that gets Christians through extremely hard things? It's this, this vision of what God has for us and what God is doing. When Jesus said, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that, that is so intense and so exciting that it allows you to dig your oar deeper into the water than you ever would have been able to. It gives the Christian grit. It gives the Christian depth. It gives the Christian, everything the Christian needs to persevere. So I encourage you, look back, look down, look forward this week. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? We're gonna end in some worship. Father, I thank you so much for your grace. God, I thank you that you are enough. I thank you, Lord, for the cultural mandate. I thank you that it reminds us of what humanity's supposed to look like. God, thank you that uh, we're never more human than when we're fully uh, enveloped in what you have and what you're doing. God, I just pray for this church. I pray that we would be those that are gospel rich, even when we're earthly poor, Man, that we would just see how rich we are because of the future that we have, because you have paid for our sins. You have accredited righteousness into our account. You have deposited your spirit. You have put your seal on us. You have given us your name. You have called us your kids. God, we have so much. We are so blessed because of what you did, Christ. It's all grace. And for that reason, God, because you have blessed us and because you are good, God, we want to worship you. And we love you, in Jesus' name.